Kevin, tell me about how this story begins. Who does it start with? So there's a DEA agent named Brady Wilson who's assigned to this sort of mid-sized city in southern Utah called St. George, um, which is just surrounded by these big red rocks um, kind of in the middle of the of the desert. And it's a city that, you know, historically hasn't had a lot of drug problems, but Brady Wilson, this DEA agent, notices in around 2019 that there are big loads of synthetic drugs arriving in the city. Kevin Seif is the Mexico City bureau chief for The Post. For the last year, he and our colleagues at The Post have been investigating how synthetic drugs like fentanyl have ended up all over the United States. Fentanyl is cheap and easy to make. It's also deadly. Last year, it killed over 70,000 people in the U.S. The victims are young, old, rich, and poor. This crisis is impacting communities across the country. Officials and law enforcement say they're seeing street drugs laced with the potent opioid more than ever before. and it's Fentanyl is the most deadly widespread drug we've ever seen. Kevin wanted to understand where fentanyl gets manufactured and how these drugs end up in the U.S. He started following people like Brady Wilson, who used to work for the Drug Enforcement Administration. Brady was obsessed with St. George, Utah, this town in the middle of Mormon country that had now become part of a drug pipeline. And it's confusing to him because this isn't a city that has historically received these big loads. And so he goes on this this sort of quest to figure out what has changed, who is bringing these large quantities of synthetic drugs into this small city. Well, new concern tonight over the continuing emergence of a highly, highly dangerous drug. While law enforcement right here in Utah made several recent busts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, December 13th. Today, Kevin brings us the story of how fentanyl from Mexico makes it to all corners of the U.S. And how one federal investigation dubbed Operation Sour Cream helped expose this drug pipeline. So, Kevin, what did Brady first think when he discovered that drugs were flooding into St. George? Was there any history of this, or was it just really totally out of the blue? Yeah, this was pretty out of the blue. I mean, like a lot of small cities in the United States, St. George has had small drug issues for many years, but nothing major. It's a largely Mormon city. A lot of retirees have moved there. So it's not the kind of place that we normally associate with major drug problems. But Wilson had moved to St. George from Seattle. And so he'd seen the way that Mexican drug cartels can kind of set up shop in big American cities. And so he had this sort of question in the back of his head, is it possible that the cartels arrived in St. George. When the thought first occurred to him, it sounded a little ridiculous. Like, why would the Sinaloa cartel set up shop in this small city of retirees and and Mormons? But the more loads, the more big loads kept arriving, the more he just couldn't get this theory out of his head. I should say that while I interviewed Wilson, he's now at the Department of Justice, and they wouldn't let us record him. And so this theory... When did this change from a theory to an actual working investigation? 
So the first thing that happened was in around 2020, is someone came up to the FBI field office in St. George with a tip. And the tip was, there's someone in this community with links to cartels in Mexico. And this was a crazy moment, especially for Brady, for the DEA agent, because it almost felt to him like this tip kind of leapt out of his own subconscious, like this had been his working theory. And then here comes this, this person who says exactly the thing that he had suspected. And so that's kind of like the thing that um, sparks this investigation. And from there, they began buying drugs in large quantities using undercover buyers. These are like informants, often people who speak Spanish who are buying um, who are buying drugs from Spanish-speaking dealers. And they're buying so much meth, so much fentanyl, that at one point, like the local DEA um, boss has to beg his boss for more money um, because they're basically like running out of money buying so much meth from from these these local dealers. And by doing that, they're able to figure out where the drugs come from and who's the sort of local kingpin that's responsible for selling them. There are these sort of like moments of of like real, um, almost almost like dark um, comedy that happened during the course of the investigation where like they're buying loads and one of the loads arrives in a sour cream container, like an industrial size sour cream container. And the investigation is dubbed Operation Sour Cream. At this point, the agents begin to wonder, is there maybe a link between the drug traffickers and a local Mexican restaurant? And what they did find out was that there was a guy, Angel Rubio Quintana, who had a family link to the restaurant. And it would turn out that he was the person at the center of the drug trafficking ring in St. George. Ángel, ¿me escuchas? Sí, lo escucho. Ok. Pues, yo puedo intentar visitarte. I actually ended up talking to Rubio at one point and asked him a little bit about his life and how he got to St. George. Claro. Pero, ¿por qué St. George? ¿Ustedes tenían familia aquí? Sí, porque ahí vive la familia de mi esposa. Claro. Ok. Rubio spoke really quickly. Like, he was really eager to share a story, really eager to clear the air. You know, he, he told the story of just being someone who left Mexico to escape problems there, came to the U.S. to work and make money. And ended up in this small town in Utah because that's where, that's where his wife's family lived. Um, you know, he described a sort of normal, quiet life in a suburb um, and was eager to distance himself from the kind of image of the cartel kingpin that federal agents had described. And did Rubio fit this image of a cartel kingpin? Yeah, I mean, I think that they, like many of us, had the impression that if you are the Sinaloa cartel's affiliate in any city in the United States, you've got to be a pretty sophisticated criminal. And, you know, I think a lot of us who've watched narcos or who've who've seen, you know, major uh, Hollywood movies about drug trafficking have seen that. During the early 80s, the best smuggler in the world was Pablo Escobar. He was a living embodiment of the Colombian dream. Like there is this idea of the sophisticated transnational drug trafficker. And that is very much not what Angel Rubio is. And so part of the investigation was these agents realizing that to traffic drugs 
even to traffic them very efficiently from Mexico to the United States, you don't actually have to be like a really senior high level cartel affiliate. Uh, you don't even really have to be very sophisticated in general. One of the ways that they were actually able to track down on Hel Rubio was they were driving around the city. They drove past this Mexican restaurant that has some links to Angel. It's his in-laws who run the restaurant. And they actually saw that he was selling used cars in the parking lot and writing his own phone number on the windshields of those cars. And so it was like this moment where they were like, okay, we're not dealing with El Chapo here. The more they learn about Rubio, the more it appears he's like a little bit of a like sort of rookie in this world. He has a ranch he uses as a, as a cover for his operation, but the cows keep on escaping into the suburbs and he's constantly in debt. So we're dealing with a guy who might not be as sophisticated, but is still able to traffic thousands and thousands of, of lethal doses of fentanyl every month. And, and just to get a sense of scale of how large Rubio's alleged you know, drug operation was, how many pills did agents estimate he was, he was selling a month? So as they continued their investigation, uh, agents estimated that Rubio was importing between 20 and 30,000 fentanyl pills. So that's M these are counterfeit M30 pills per month. Um, and you know, it's important to say that one of these pills is enough to OD, especially if you're a first-time fentanyl user. And in many cases, most cases, people who are buying these pills don't actually know that the pills contain fentanyl at all. So 20,000 to 30,000 pills a month in a small American city is a huge number of pills. So what about Brady Wilson? What was his reaction to what they discovered during the investigation? So Wilson surprised mainly by the details of who Rubio is. He's not surprised that there's someone with a link to Mexican cartels operating in St. George, because that's, of course, that was his thesis in the first place. So Wilson learns more and more about Rubio in the course of the investigation. And, you know, the more he learns, the more he realizes that he's not exactly chasing, like, the kind of cartoon version of a cartel kingpin. In fact, Rubio, it turns out, is illiterate, which is the thing that the agents glean from listening in to hours of conversations with him talking to his associates. Um, he's a guy who has no formal education, um, not a super sophisticated criminal by any stretch, just a guy who somehow happened into organized crime. Even though Rubio sometimes could seem almost like a kind of bumbling criminal, he was still able to import a huge amount of fentanyl into the United States every month. We're talking about thousands and thousands of pills, enough to kill hundreds of people a month. After the break, what the DEA found out about how and how Rubio was getting fentanyl into St. George. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we learn more about the suspect and this particular investigation, I I did want to step back here just to understand a little bit more about how drugs like this end up in in what's maybe thought of as a sleepy suburb. It's not a major metropolitan city. Can you walk us through how generally drug trafficking from Mexico into the U.S. typically works? Yeah. So over the last few decades, Mexico has been carved up into kind of mini fiefdoms. So different cartels control different passageways to the U.S. border, and they even control different parts of the border itself. And we're mostly talking about between, you know, two or three major cartels that operate across the entire country. What has changed with the emergence of synthetic drugs is that Mexico is now not only a transit country the way that it was, for example, with cocaine, but now we're seeing fentanyl and meth actually manufactured in Mexico. And so the same cartels that for many decades have been responsible for trafficking drugs are now also in charge of manufacturing drugs. Some people within the Mexican government actually deny that fentanyl is produced in Mexico. And they say, you know, it's imported from China and then merely trafficked through Mexico to get to the United States. But, you know, the more people you talk to uh, within Mexican law enforcement on the ground, the more recognition there is that this is actually a pretty major problem. There are more labs across northwestern Mexico where fentanyl and meth are produced and then trafficked to the U.S. Um, Cracking down on those labs detaining those people has been an enormous challenge in Mexico, particularly in parts of Mexico where organized crime has more power than the government itself. The question of how they arrive, those drugs arrive in this small town, it's kind of a variation on the way that drug trafficking has worked for many decades. In the case of this town, St. George, it's basically the Sinaloa cartel that's responsible for getting drugs to Southern Utah. Um, And so the same way that Mexican cartels have divided up Mexico, they've also divided up the United States. So Sinaloa is a a state in northwestern Mexico that is the home to the Sinaloa cartel. That was the, the cartel that El Chapo worked for. And it is now the main manufacturer of fentanyl in Mexico. The Sinaloa cartel really was ahead of the curve when it came to fentanyl production. Um, as soon as the sort of movement of fentanyl manufacturing shifted from China to Mexico, which happened, you know, roughly in 2017, 2018, 2019, um, the Sinaloa cartel set up these large labs, many of them just outside um, in the hills of Culiacan and Sinaloa, and they would produce fentanyl and then basically press that fentanyl into pills in Tijuana. And then from there, um, and this is sort of an answer to your question of how the drugs arrive in St. George, they're trafficked across the border into San Diego. Um, And then the next link in the chain is from San Diego to Los Angeles, where there are these large warehouses on the outskirts of Los Angeles. And then from there, you can imagine in your head like a map of the rest of the United States and little spokes popping out from L.A. And so one of those spokes was the Sinaloa cartel with its new affiliate in St. George, Utah, taking drugs from L.A. directly to southern Utah um, without stopping in Las Vegas or anywhere else. And suddenly you have these large loads arriving, you know, basically 24 hours after the end of the United States, they're in St. George. 
So what does it say about the synthetic drug crisis that now a place like St. George, Utah, is a known location for the cartel to target? So we're, we're at a moment now where the problem of synthetic drugs is a problem across the whole country. You know, it's not a problem just in big cities. It's a problem in small towns. It's a, part, it's a problem in rural America. And from the cartel perspective, that, of course, means that there's an appetite for these drugs across the United States. Um, and they're, they are catering to people who are doing fentanyl because they know they, they're doing fentanyl, they want to do fentanyl, but they're also masking other drugs with fentanyl across the country. Um, and so the, the people who end up using the drugs that come across the border that are distributed by people like Angel Rubio live in every kind of place you can imagine in the United States. So at this point, Angel Rubio is a suspect. Investigators are looking into him further, but what they're finding is he doesn't appear to be this highly sophisticated potential drug kingpin. So how is it that he's allegedly so good at selling drugs? So that was the big question that these agents had. And to answer that question, they were able to get a wiretap on his phone um, authorized by a judge. The agents involved in the investigation would later share what they heard in the wiretaps with me. And also that information ended up going into reams of court documents. And basically for a year, roughly a year, they were listening in on conversations that Angel was having both with his suppliers in Mexico and the people who were uh, trafficking the drugs to St. George from California and from Mexico. And what they learned was like, there's a sort of a way in which anyone who has reasonable cartel connections can order synthetic drugs from Mexico as if it's like a pizza delivery. You can have a phone call with a guy in Sinaloa and say, I need this many fentanyl pills. And they had nicknames for all of the drugs. The agents could hear him say, I need buttons, which they learned meant fentanyl pills. They could hear him say, I need glass, which meant meth. And they're just listening in for months and months to these orders of drugs from St. George to Mexico. And they realized just how efficiently these cartels are able to deliver these drugs. Like you could order 20,000, 30,000 fentanyl pills and they'll be in Southern Utah within like a couple of days. We also think often about how, you know, the sort of windy road that drugs take to get to these rural parts of the United States, but actually that's not true anymore. Um, fentanyl can get basically anywhere in the U.S. with incredible speed, incredible efficiency, and frankly, a lot of it isn't confiscated. Um, they're able to get the stuff across the border into you know a vast network of highways without really any uh, concern about law enforcement intervening. So throughout 2020, they're wiretapping him. They're learning more about his operation. What else do they learn about not only how drug cartels and drugs move from Mexico into the United States, but him, Rubio himself. So in, in the wiretap, they're listening in on conversations that he's having where he's like begging his providers, his suppliers for more time um, so that he can pay them back. Um, like he's, he's actually running some pretty serious risk with some pretty powerful people back in Mexico. And at one point, his debts become so significant that they actually threaten to kill him. He has this sort of surreal conversation with them where he's like, well, listen, I'm in the United States. Like, it's not that easy to get me. Um, you know, you, you can't threaten me here. And, and I'm imagining 
the wiretapping is also providing these agents with a window into how many drugs are being manufactured in Mexico and being sent across the border, right? Yeah, so I think it's important to say that at the same time that the agents are investigating Rubio, across the country, their colleagues are investigating other people like Rubio, who are similarly able to import enormous amounts of meth and fentanyl within, you know, hours or days from Mexico. Um, They're just seeing the number of, the amount of drugs, the seizures go up exponentially. And so Rubio, for them, is this one example of how easy it is to get drugs to sort of a mid-sized city in southern Utah, but there are versions of him everywhere. And the bigger the city in the United States, the more powerful the version of Rubio. The other incredible like window that they get into these trafficking operations comes when they, they start to hear Rubio complaining to his suppliers that they're actually sending more fentanyl pills than he ordered. And he'll say to them, like, you know, hey, you know, I, I only ordered X number of pills, but you sent me, you know, you know, 50% more. And they'll basically tell him, don't, don't worry about it. You know, just sell as many as you can and then pay us what you owe. And it's one of those moments where the agents, I think, realize just how, how massive the fentanyl crisis really is. Wow. Yeah. So then what happened next with their investigation into Rubio? They begin planning this, like, very large multi-city operation with over 100 agents involved, SWAT teams all over Utah. And they decide that they've got one day called Takedown Day that they're going to go after everyone. The U.S. Attorney's Office in St. George coordinated a large-scale multi-agency operation targeting drug traffickers during a two-day sting operation this week. This is the St. George Police Department. We have a search warrant for this address. And Rubio, of course, is at the center of this day. So early one morning, these agents and SWAT teams gather in this kind of nondescript suburb where Rubio has moved, and they raid the house. All the neighbors are very frightened, uh, and they pull Rubio out. He's wearing his pajamas, and they also arrest his son, Carlos, who's 19, who Rubio has kind of roped into his, uh, his drug trafficking operation. Rubio and his son were both charged with drug trafficking. Rubio was also charged with money laundering. They both pled guilty, and Rubio's sentencing hearing is scheduled for late December. Kevin, did you try to talk to Rubio yourself before his sentencing hearing? Yeah, I I traveled to St. George earlier this year and kind of wandered into the Mexican restaurant that his in-laws run. And as it happened, his wife was behind the counter. Um, She was working that day. And I walked up to the counter and she was on the phone and it turned out she was on the phone with him um, from prison. And so I introduced myself and said that I was doing a story on on Rubio and on the drug trafficking case. And she immediately asked if I wanted to speak to him. So she handed me the phone. Okay. Hola, Angel. Hola, ¿cómo estás? ¿Cómo estás? ¿Me escuchas? Bien, bien. Aquí, sí, aquí estoy encerrado, dígame. Ah, pues, soy Kevin, sí, soy el, el bueno, soy periodista del Washington Post. And, you know, Rubio didn't want to be too specific in his answers to me, but clearly said, you know, that the charges were exaggerated. 
pienso como lo que, de lo que acusan, pues no, no es nada cierto. Hay cosas que, que no puedo decir por teléfono, no puedo. Okay. Okay, pero si um, and that he felt like he didn't recognize himself in the description um, of the DEA's case. But then, you know, at a certain point, he hung up the phone and it was just me and his wife, Angeles. And I asked her, like, what did she make of all this, you know? And she explains how actually he had been acting really weird for months. <laughs> And he'd instituted this new rule in the house where everyone had to turn off their cell phones as soon as they entered the front door. And she wondered what was going on. Like the whole time she'd been confused. She thought at one point that maybe he was having an affair. And then all of a sudden there's this raid on her house and she watches as her son and her husband are dragged out. And she told me that she really isn't sure who to believe. Um, she doesn't necessarily believe her husband's account that he wasn't this transnational drug trafficker. In fact, you know, when she saw the claims from the Department of Justice and the DEA, she thought, yeah, maybe these are right. You know, like, why would these big American um, agencies lie about this case against her husband? I've been chatting with her over the last few months, and recently she told me that the doubts have crept in to such a degree that she's asked her husband for a divorce. Wow. Wow. Um, and and after you talked with him over the phone from prison, did you ask, oh, can I can I come meet with you? Can I have a further conversation with you? Yeah, I was very eager to talk to him. He seemed eager to talk to me. Um, he kept on saying, like, there are things I can tell you over the phone, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. Um, and Basically, a few hours after I got off the phone with him, I, I received an email from his lawyer saying that they had decided that they didn't want to speak. So that's the last time I spoke to him. And so the next step will be the sentencing hearing later this month. That's the next step in 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 Angel's case. Um, although there's this there's this really kind of dark cloud looming over it, especially I mean from his perspective, from his from his family's perspective, which is that. He was in the United States illegally. So, you know, aside from a prison sentence in the United States, Rubio worries that being deported back to Mexico could have really dangerous consequences for him. Some of the people involved in the trade who he was involved with could be pretty powerful, could have the ability to inflict damage, um, especially on someone who owes lots of money. Well, it also makes me think about the policy conversation in the United States about Mexican drug cartels and immigration and what should be done if people are charged and found guilty and they're undocumented? Like, what should be the policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a really complex topic um, when we talk about the overlap between drug trafficking and immigration. There are cases like Rubio's where you have an undocumented immigrant who does have some link to drug trafficking in the United States. But the claim that a lot of politicians make now uh, that immigration and drug trafficking are, you know, linked completely, that, you know, immigrants are the ones trafficking the drugs into the United States is actually sort of a flawed argument. Almost all of the fentanyl that enters the United States enters through ports of entry. It's not carried on the backs of undocumented immigrants. Um, and so the idea that you know, in stopping undocumented immigration, we could also stop drug trafficking um, is, is, is very flawed reasoning. Most or many of the people 
who traffic drugs, especially synthetic drugs, into the United States are people with visas, they're U.S. citizens. Um, and so I think that's an important thing to, um, to separate. So with Rubio no longer in St. George, what is happening in that community when it comes to synthetic drugs? So the agents who investigated Rubio did notice in the immediate aftermath of his arrest that the amount of synthetic drugs arriving in St. George went down. But they're also very aware of the history of the drug war, um, both in big and small forms, which is that you can get a kingpin, whether it's the kingpin of St. George or it's El Chapo, and there usually is an immediate reaction. Um, There usually is, you know, for weeks or months, uh, there are fewer drugs arriving across the border, fewer drugs arriving in the city where the kingpin was arrested. But the history of the drug war also teaches them that that impact, that, that, that consequence doesn't last very long. And so they know that they're fighting almost an impossible war in the long run. That sure, they got Rubio, but in all likelihood, there's going to be another Rubio. Collectively, we still don't entirely understand where the drugs that are purchased in the United States come from. Um, And we don't understand how they get there. And so for me, one of the main takeaways was understanding that these pipelines exist everywhere in the U.S. St. George is not the exception. You know, the pipeline that Rubio created from Mexico to St. George exists to dozens of other cities in the United States. And so I think understanding the way that they work, understanding the way that cartels use, for example, the American highway system to transport their drugs, and frankly, understanding just how easy it is to get drugs from the border to X city. Um, To me, that was a real, a real revelation. And I think it's important to note that like the, the kind of Hollywood caricature version of the drug trafficker that we have in our heads is not true to real life. Um, what, what we see more frequently um, are people who are, you know, maybe struggling financially and end up in this really scary, very dangerous, deadly world of drug trafficking, even though they're not as sort of sophisticated or high profile as we might imagine. Thank you, Kevin, for bringing us your reporting. Thank you. Kevin Seif is the Mexico City Bureau Chief for The Post. The story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was edited by Rena Flores. Additional editing by Courtney Kahn, Trish Wilson, and Jeff Lean. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Copy editing by Francis Moody and Jordan Melendres. This is just one story from Cartel RX, an investigative series from The Post looking at the deadly fentanyl pipeline from Mexican labs to U.S. streets. You can find the link to the entire project in our show notes. This kind of work is only possible because of the support of listeners like you who subscribe to The Washington Post. If you're not a subscriber yet, now is a great time to start. Right now, you can save over 70% on a new premium subscription to The Washington Post. And that new premium subscription comes with a bonus subscription to share. You can find this deal at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.